So I'd like to begin by uh, saying thank you to the uh, Buddhist Society of WA who so very warmly welcomed us here this afternoon. It's, uh, it's inspiring indeed to come to a place like this and, and always a delight to, to meet Dhamma friends. And, and indeed it's been a great pleasure the last few days to uh, hang out with my mate, Ajahn Brahm, as Sol called him. Um, indeed we have been mates for about 30 years, I think, since we first met in Thailand. We, we're about the same age. In fact, we're exactly the same age. We arrived in Thailand in the same time in the early 1970s. And he from England and myself from New Zealand. And here we are 30 years later, him in Australia and me in Britain. And he's cooking in the Australian sun and I'm freezing in Northumberland snow. And but it's nice to come here and not just to enjoy the sun. I do enjoy the sun, that's definitely true. And, but the last few days out at Serpentine Monastery and walking with Ajahn Brahm around the monastery and talking over old times and present times and possible future times, and it's good, very good. And also to see the young monks there, and it's an inspiration and, and a real pleasure. And also, of course, to have time to catch up with... Uh, Tan Suri Panyo here, who um, I've known for a number of years. Um, in fact, he wasn't quite so upright and impressive when I first knew him, and he was a, a um, obviously living the celibate renunciate life, done him a world of good. And I, <laughs> I knew him as a, as, a, as a less upright university student before he was, he, well, he definitely wasn't a celibate and renunciate in those days. And, he was in Edinburgh University and helping us build our monastery actually. He used to come down and dig the trenches. And so it's, it's wonderful to meet Dhamma friends and to spend time together and to meet all of you. Um, I have been here two or three times before and it's a pleasure to come back again. Just before the meeting this evening... Um, Two friends and supporters of the monastery uh, took us for a wee drive out to the, the coast. I, I forget the name of the beach, some beautiful white sand beach, which you seem to have plenty of over here. And there we were walking along the coast, taking in the sea breeze, and the sun was setting, and the dolphins were playing, and it was lovely, it really was. And then the phone rang. And uh, there's been a problem in the monastery, and um, what should we do about it? The office administrator's run away, and this is the monastery in Northumberland I'm talking about. And, <laughs> and um, I confess, part of me, part of, just a little part of me, just thought, do I have to deal with this? <laughs> do I really have to deal with this? And I thought, well, you know, yes, I do. So, and uh, it was okay. We dealt with it, and. And um, there was also, I, I realized, as I, as I recognized the little resistance to dealing with this somewhat irritating issue that arose in the context of watching the sunset and seeing the dolphins dance around and enjoying pleasant conversations with good friends and companions. There was at the same time also, dealing with this issue, there was also a certain quiet sense of, um, of happiness to realize that that to be able to enjoy these beautiful things, but also to 
to these days find that one has sufficient agility of mind to, to be able to change tack and change pace and deal with this. This is what's happening now. Now, it's true, the mobile phone could have been switched off and you know, we wouldn't have had to deal with it, but actually it needed dealing with. And there are things in life that, that come to us and do need dealing with. They may be not necessarily what we want to be dealing with, but it needs to be dealt with. And, and it's wonderful, I find. It is a wonderful thing to, to have a spiritual practice that, that focuses on and emphasizes that practice is dealing with this, this is practice, as Tansuri Panya was saying in the meditation instruction that we train our hearts and minds to be with this, whatever this is, uh, here, in this moment, in this place. And there, are, of course, are many religions in the world, many spiritual disciplines that, <clears throat> that uh, offer different pathways of practice and guidelines and instruction and systems and and so on. And, but the Buddhist path of practice and that which brings us all together and, 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 and it is such a joy to share is the commitment to training our hearts and minds to be here with this. And this is unique. And sometimes, of course, if you're doing this practice for a, for a while, you can take it all for granted. And, um, of course, like anything, when we take it for granted, we, we lose the edge. So as was being suggested in the meditation instruction. I think it's wise and skillful whenever we go to sit to stop and remind ourselves that this is our practice. Yes, we put time aside to sit formally, to quieten down, to minimize the, minimize the distractions and go inwards. But still we're dealing with this, what's here. We're not allowing our mind to be pulled compulsively into what's going to happen in the future or what might happen in the future. On Sunday, I'm going to South Africa to see people in South Africa. What might be happening in South Africa? It's a valid thought, but I don't have to be pulled by that. Or what's happened in the past. Uh, we can be dwelling on the past. But our discipline, our training is, is rooted in this, here, now. And um, my experience has been and, uh, that if we do really listen to this principle of training to really keep bringing ourselves back not dismissing the past not dismissing the future but finding our ground our sense of presence here and now then it does give us that agility that ability to adjust to accord with the changing conditions whether agreeable or disagreeable one of the great inspirations that I had in my when I first went to Thailand um, about 29, 30 years ago, and, and met Ajahn Chah, was to witness this ability he had, that uh, in one situation he could, be, he could be talking with the local villagers, some, some village chap could come along, and he, you know, he's, his, his water buffalo, his only water buffalo has died, and, and there's no, no way of plowing the fields, and the kids are not going to get educated, and Ajahn Chah was there for him. There was this quality of attention you knew that there was sensitivity, there was understanding, there was empathy, there was presence, and, and there was this, this person, this suffering person felt received, felt understood, and, and then there was a, a helpful response. And, and then a few minutes later, somebody from the palace could turn up, and they wanted Ajahn Chah to go down to Bangkok and give a talk, and, 
and Ajahn Chah would be for this person and would listen and and then some young monk would come along with all his problems or all his insights, you know, maybe he thought he was enlightened or something and just wanted, <laughs> that happened as well and just wanted Ajahn Chah to just certify his enlightenment and, and Ajahn Chah was there for him or for her and, and that agility was, I found, when, to witness that in another, to witness that not woolly-mindedness, not wishy-washy woolly-mindedness that isn't able to focus but not that rigidity of focus that isn't able to adjust, but to be able to adjust and to be fully there, embodied, sensitive, alive, feeling and hearing deeply, beyond the way things appear to be, not just hearing according to our preferences, and not just seeing according to our preferences. And, and so this is, uh, this is obviously a training that we, we need to do. When I met Ajahn Chah, he'd been a monk for many years and it wasn't just something that he, he suddenly just turned on and you suddenly become this, this profoundly sensitive, alert, wise being. And of course the Buddha never promised us that either, but rather what was offered was a path of training, a teaching, a pointing, which suggested there is this possibility of going beyond, of seeing beyond, feeling beyond, hearing beyond the way things appear to be. So we're not just fooled by the immediate impulse. Like today when the phone call came, the immediate impulse was, I'd much rather be with the dolphins right now, <laughs> and then the sunset and talking with Suripanyu about nice things. But no, here's a problem in Northumberland, and, uh, you know, so you accord with it, and... When I first went to live in this monastery in Northumberland, uh, there were a lot of problems, actually. Uh, some of you might think, or probably a lot of you know, you've been around and you know what it's like being in monasteries. Uh, the hard work, and um, <clears throat> this was when I was living in England, when I was living in this, went to this first monastery, went to this monastery 12 years ago, there were, there were huge problems, all sorts of difficulties with the building work that was going on and the neighbours and and there was a legal case going on as well and there were funding problems and not to mention difficulties with novice monks and or my, myself for that matter. Yeah. So there were all sorts of things going on and part of me thought, God, who needs it? You know, I didn't go forth for all this. And, but again, the teaching says that this is practice, this is it. And uh, so I developed this little practice. And not long before I went there, we'd had in uh, the south of England, we'd had a major hurricane and swept through the south of England and, and our property there in West Sussex, the monastery of Chithurst, some of you may have read or heard about. There's a large forest property and, and when this hurricane blew through, we lost a huge amount of trees and a lot of the uh, trees that came down were these great big grand beautiful beech trees, huge great big beautiful beech trees that just came crashing down and and it was, uh, became apparent that the root system of these beech trees was very shallow because they planted a lot of pines around them and, and so the winds didn't blow and these beech trees grew and, and because they weren't shaken by the winds, the, tr deep, the roots didn't go very deep and so when these serious winds came along, these beech trees just toppled over. And, and I remember this all being explained to me and pointed out. And, well, that's interesting. And so when I was in Northumberland, where we get a lot of wind, by the way, 
Um, and I was being blown around by all these problems and these issues. I developed a little, a little therapy for myself where every morning I would go into the shrine room, and in the shrine room, <coughs> in the shrine room we had a Bodhi tree, and uh, a very small Bodhi tree, and we were protecting it and hoping it would grow, although Bodhi trees are not really supposed to grow in Northumberland. We, we looked after this Bodhi tree and hoping it would take root and develop into something. And Anyway, it's a beautiful symbol for for the Buddha and for enlightenment and, and worth looking after. And so I developed this practice that, well, this Bodhi tree being inside all the time is not getting blown around, and so its roots are not going to go down very deep. And so every morning I went to the shrine tree and give it a little shake <laughs> and say, send your roots down, <laughs> give it a little shake. And, of course, what I was really doing was it wasn't the Bodhi tree, but it was my commitment to Bodhi, my commitment to the path of practice that I was really reminding myself that, when the winds blow, when we get shaken by things, whether it's criticism or, you know, your moods, you're just, you know, you're just in a bad mood, you're tired or grumpy and you don't want to deal with something or you get a phone call when you're not ready for it or a letter or an email that comes in and it's just got all the, you know, or you do a bad interview for a job or something and, and you feel pushed around and we can settle for the way things appear to be. We can be fooled by the way things appear to be, by what our senses tell us. And, you know, when you feel disappointed, you feel like the world's coming to an end or you feel angry. If you really feel angry, I'm never going to be happy until I really let this person have it. You know, sometimes if you're working with somebody who, who's got a bit of an attitude and... and um, you feel like, well, you're the person to tell them about it. Somebody's got to tell this character. Obviously, they, they need a reflection, and, uh, and nobody's telling them. It's definitely up to me. And, and, uh, but you feel driven by your resentment. You feel driven by your indignation, by your anger. I've really got to tell this guy, really, or this woman, as the case may be. And, you know, if we, if we allow ourselves to follow that, what happens? What are they here? when we feel driven by that. What they hear is just our anger. You know, it, it's, you know, I'm sure most of us have experienced this, whether it's on the being the receiving end or the giving end. When somebody's angry at us, all we hear is their anger. Even if what they're saying is true, even if we needed to hear something or they needed to hear something, the hearing doesn't really happen. All they hear is the anger. And yet when we feel angry, we can be fooled by the way it appears to be or... With desire, we can be fooled by the way desire appears to be. I'll never be happy again until I, I just have this. You know, or, you know if you, maybe you just log on and just say, I need this book from Amazon. You know, just go to Amazon.com and get this one book. And then, of course, all your favorites come up and they start telling you, well, you need this book and you need that book. And you say, well, maybe I do need that book. And the next thing you know, you've spent, you know, however much you've spent on and you ordered ten books or something, and, and the books arrive, and you say, what did I do that for? And, well, you know, okay, it's a minor, minor uh, experience of getting caught up in greed, but these things, we can be fooled. Why are we fooled? Well, from the Buddhist perspective, we're fooled because we don't see deeply enough. We don't see the reality. We don't see the bigger picture. We only see the small picture. We only see that which accords with my preferences, what I want to see. So our training, our training 
based in, in a practice of cultivating attentions rooted in the here and now, training and developing agility of attention, means that we need to prepare ourselves to not be fooled, not, not just to jump to conclusions, not to assume things too quickly about the way things appear to be. Because so often it's the case that our moods, our anger or our fear, our sadness, disappointment, you know, our desire, as, as, as real and, and tremendously important as these things might appear to be in the moment, if we can just wait, it does change. And if we don't act, we think, oh, thank goodness I didn't follow that one. But we do need to really register this. And, uh, and there, are, you know, there are many examples in everyday life where we can help ourselves become aware of how the importance of this. Um, again, in the early days of uh, working and building the monastery in Chithurst, Chithurst Monastery, this is talking about 20 years ago, where we, we've been given this great big mock Tudor Victorian mansion. It was riddled with dry rot and and a uh, horrendous mess of a house. And, and, but it's what we were given, and, and we would work sometimes 12 hours a day, seven days a week, renovating this thing, stripping all the plaster off and impregnating the walls with you know, things to deal with the dry rot and plasterboarding and so on and so forth. And I remember there was one day when, when uh, we, we decided that we were going to split up these two big rooms and uh, make them into three or four smaller rooms. And so we looked at these walls and thought, well, is this, a, is this a supporting wall or not? Is this a supporting wall or not? You know, this is a huge big mansion. Is this a supporting Is this structural or not? And so, well, it probably is. But we were, okay, better go careful. So, okay, what we did was very careful, very skillful, intelligent. Took a whole course out on the bottom, at the floor level. Took the plaster off, took the, everything out. So you could see right through. There's the pillars here, one there, one there. You can see right through, nothing. There was nothing touching the floor there. This is looking good. This is not a supporting wall. So we better be careful. You never know. We better do the same thing at the top again. So we did the same thing, very careful. So we took a layer across the top, stripped about a foot high and right across, pillar to pillar. Look right through to the next room, nothing. So it's not a supporting wall. No problem. So the monk in charge just tells the, you know, the young novices, get rid of it, and then goes off and has a cup of tea, which is what senior monks tend to do. <laughs> and it's, uh, delegating, it's called. And, um, and so the wall was taken down. The next morning, the senior monk came back to see the result, and goodness me, what had happened was the roof was, was like this, that the roof was like this. What, what wasn't known was the particular building uh, structures of the Victorians and houses like what, what they like that they had these these cross beams that went from pillar to pillar. It didn't go up and down. Didn't touch the roof. Didn't touch the floor. Went between pillar to pillar. Now, not knowing the building skill uh, design of the Victorians, one wasn't able to see. So we're okay. We just knocked that wall down. No problem. No problem. Just knock it down. We were very lucky. Actually, we got the acroprops in just in time to save the roof. It could have been a disaster. And, uh, well, when things like that happen, I think it's good to stop and think, say, mm, we can be fooled by the way things appear to be. You know, it appears to be one way, but sometimes it's completely different. And, um, you know, it, it's, again, just to emphasize, it's so easy to, to let ourselves be conned by, according to our preferences, it's really convenient if this is not a supportive wall. It'd be really nice. 
And so it wasn't difficult to convince ourselves that it wasn't structural and just take the thing out. Well, according to uh, you know, Buddhist speak, Buddhist language, this is the realm of samsara, the realm of delusion, where we're easily fooled, willingly fooled, by the apparent level of things. If something looks good, feels good, it must be good. If it looks bad, feels bad, it must be bad. But we've all lived long enough and followed our impulses enough to you know, have a suspicion that, well, some things feel good and they're not good. They're really not good. They feel tremendously good and you can really want something and it's really not good for you and you really, really want it. Now, what's going on there? What is that? Well, it's, it's delusion. We're not seeing accurately enough. There's desire and it looks like if I gratify this desire, then I'll be happy. It really, really looks that way. I mean, I, I have this problem with, uh, with cheesecake. <laughs> this is a confession. You know, I, I never discovered cheesecake till I went to live in Europe. I thought cheesecake was a little sort of thin biscuity thing with a bit of something sweet on top of it. I've now discovered German cheesecake. And um, I could have a full meal and be really, really satisfied and then somebody comes along with one of these cheesecakes and there's no doubt about it, I really want to eat it, all of it. <laughs> and that's, it's utterly unnecessary and it's not good for me. If I eat it, I've done it sometimes. In fact, I usually do it. <laughs> I do, I usually take it and, um, and I usually feel ill afterwards. Embarrassing, isn't it? After 30 years as a monk, it's, it's, it's humiliating. And maybe, maybe my confession today will help me get a little more of an angle on it. I do, I usually get it wrong with cheesecake. And what's going on there? It's apparent reality. I mean, I really, in terms of actuality, in terms of reality, I don't need that cheesecake. I really, in terms of truth, don't need that cheesecake. But something within me says, yes, take it. And you take it and then you experience the consequences. So we, this is samsara. This is where we're fooled by the surface level. And so we have this encouragement to cultivate a quality of attention rooted in the here and now so that our attention is not just informed by the way the surface level, the way things appear to be. This is the, what the Buddhists call the world. And as you chant, probably most of you know, in the chanting, the Buddha, one of the names for the Buddha, one of the descriptions of the Buddha was loka vidu, somebody who sees through the loka, sees through the world, sees through the world. Doesn't get rid of the world, doesn't, you know, fly up into heaven, develop wings and fluff around, play his harp and you know, eat nectar and so on. No, that wasn't, what, that wasn't what the Buddha was doing. The Buddha lived in the world, walked with his feet on this planet, the same planet that we're on, but he saw the world, he knew the world for what the world was. And knowing the world for what the world is means seeing through samsara, seeing through apparent reality, not being fooled by it, not judging and saying it's bad, or but just recognizing it. Saying, well, it's like this. It's like this, you know, including I feel, I feel desire. I do, I feel desire. I want this. But that doesn't mean to say it's good for me. Or I don't want this. But that doesn't mean to say it's bad for me. Just, so to have that willingness, I think this is really the essence of our practice, is to cultivate a willingness to wait, to listen, to not assume, so that a deeper quality of knowing 
can emerge or a deeper quality of, of hearing can be activated so we can hear from another place within ourselves, feel from another place within ourselves, not just feel, hear or see according to our preferences. So samsara can be very seductive, very attractive, very appealing. You might have come across that uh, there's a perfume called samsara. I see, I see some of the women nodding. As, you know, maybe some of you wear samsara. And, uh, I met a woman who was selling it once. <laughs> she was, I was in an airport, and um, you know how you get stuck between planes. I think it was in Belgium, and... Um, I think I was travelling from one country to another and you know they have all those shops that are the same whichever airport you're in anywhere around the world are all the same shops selling handbags or mobile phones or and there's a perfume shop and I was walking up and down trying to pass three hours or something between flights and and I'd done a few laps of the uh, the, the shop area and, and this uh, lady came out and dressed in blood red and she came up to me and she says, what are you doing? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I said, well, I'm a Buddhist monk and I'm walking up and down. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, well, I'm selling samsara. <laughs> <laughs> I, said, I said well that's interesting I said, I said do you know what samsara means she says no tell me and I said, I said, I said samsara means the endless cycle of deluded existence she says oh that's wonderful <laughs> and she rushed inside and she brought out all the other ladies dressed in blood red and she says tell them tell them <laughs> well, the, the perfume might be quite nice. I don't know. She didn't give me a sample. But <laughs> the actuality of, of samsara is not that nice, really. You know, when we get caught in the apparent level of existence, we get fooled badly by it. And we get pulled into things that, that, that hurt ourselves and hurt others. And we all know that, and that's what we're here for. But uh, to get ourselves out of samsara, to get ourselves out of being fooled by the way things appear to be, means that we do really have to train ourselves. We've got to make an effort to inhibit the tendency to just grasp at assumptions, you know, like in meditation. And, you know, we all know it's a good idea. We, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be here if we didn't think it was a good idea. But when you're sitting there and you're watching the breath or whatever your meditation object is, and you start feeling a little restless and your knees start hurting or, you know, or maybe you've got some fantastic idea for a, a new deal or, or something. You, you, you can, you know, I could just, I could market that. I could market that idea. And, you, and it's so tempting sometimes, creative ideas. Like in our monastery, we're building a retreat house. We've been building it for about 15 years. <laughs> things happen slowly in Northumberland, not, not like Western Australia where you get things done. We do things slowly, and, um, and, but I'd like to get things done. And, and I tell you, often it happens in my meditation. I'm sitting there and I think, well, you know, we could do this. And it's such a tempting fantasy 
You know, I love to, I love to, in my mind, think the shrine room could be like this. We could have that kind of wood. We, we could have oak floor, beautiful oak floor. And we could have oak window frames and, and this golden Buddha image. Or should we have a white Buddha image? And it's, it's so tempting. And yet you can spend a long time just dwelling on these things. And, and then the meditations end and you think, well, what was that all about? <laughs> And I did the same thing when, you know, I mean, 30 years ago I was, I don't know if you, any of you have ever heard of Mullumbimby. It's on the other side of the country. You probably don't talk about people on the east, but I uh, first came across meditation actually when I was, I was living in a, um, a nice community with very beautiful people doing beautiful things at a beautiful time back in the early 70s. And um, I was very fortunate to come across uh, a monk who was teaching meditation and and so I, I was sitting on this, in this in my nice little beautiful house that I built up there on the ridges in Mullumbimby, practicing meditation. But I used to get obsessed with building tree houses. Now it sounds silly, doesn't it? Building it was agony. It was agony. I couldn't pull my mind back. I couldn't pull my mind back because there was a lack of willingness within me. And and. It doesn't sound very much, but it ruined my meditation. Now, some of you might have the same experience from time to time in meditation, whether it's desire or whether it's ill will, resentment, sadness, problems that you have with the family. Our minds can be really easily pulled into these things, and unless there's a willingness to go against it, unless there's a willingness to go against my way, unless there's a willingness to really inhibit this tendency to feeling like I've got a right to get what I want. That's, that's what's behind it. I shouldn't have to restrain my impulses to think of building a beautiful shrine room. Shrine room. This is a noble fantasy. This is a virtuous fantasy. Actually, it's a waste of time, a complete waste of time, a heedless, complete waste of time. And meditation. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a time to stop and contemplate doing beautiful things. That's absolutely fine. But when you're sitting in meditation... The effort is to be here, to let go of the tendency to be pulled into the future or pulled into the past, to be pulled into sensuality, to be pulled into negativity, and to train ourselves to come back to this. Be still, be silent, let go. But for that to happen, there does have to be this willingness. So in the cultivation of this willingness, um, I think we really do need to be quite conscious, quite clear of how necessary it is that if we don't do it, then we, we're going to just keep getting spun around, round and round and round and round. The reason that we can't withdraw our minds from these tempting fantasies or these miserable, painful memories and, and so on is because we don't really believe it's necessary. We don't see the consequences. I mean, basic Buddhist understanding, we only let go of our suffering when we see that we need to do it when we don't actually see the consequences of our clinging, we don't let go of our clinging. When we see the consequences of our clinging, when we really feel it, letting go happens. And so the Buddha said over and over again, mindfulness of suffering leads to freedom from suffering. And he didn't talk about suffering just because he had some kind of a sick perspective on life. Not at all. But because we have this habit of avoiding suffering, of not wanting to know suffering, we keep avoiding, we develop this 
addiction to avoiding suffering called ignorance. Because we have this, we don't understand the nature of suffering. We keep misperceiving suffering. In fact, we compound suffering. We build suffering. We cultivate suffering. We live on suffering. And because we don't see it, then we never get out of the cycle of samsaric existence. So the Buddha and his wisdom and compassion encourage us to, little by little, not just doctrinally or, or excessively forcing ourselves to you know, let go of all our habits and become spiritual and become good Buddhists or any such thing, but when we find in life that we're suffering or we basically we, we get it wrong, we make mistakes, we, we, we assume something to be true when it turns out to be completely the opposite. In that moment of seeing that, to stop and really feel it, to feel the consequences. You know, like, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of, of being there, standing with somebody else, and somebody comes along and they start talking about how wonderful, they start offering praise, and you think it's for you, and then it turns out to be for the other person. <laughs> You know, they say, oh, that was wonderful. What you did was just so wonderful. You say, oh, really? And say, no, no, I was talking to him. <laughs> it's embarrassing. Now, of course, when we get embarrassed, you get embarrassed, you want to just forget about it. Well, what I'm suggesting is when we get caught out, when we get caught out in making our mistakes, not to just dis- dismiss it, not just to avoid it, but to turn that into practice, saying, oh, this is it. In this moment, when I really feel the consequence of clinging to that which is false of misperceiving, when we really feel it, then letting go happens. So this can happen within ourselves or also you can see it happening all around us in the world. You can see it happening with other people. I was on a train uh, in, in England a, a few months ago and, and uh, it was, I don't know what, what public transport's like in this country if it's anything like, you know, the people in Australia or anything like they, they are when, in the beginning of the meditation tonight when Tansiri Panya said, turn off your mobile phones, nobody moved. Obviously, you're all very sensitive, respectful, considerate people. And you just know as soon as you come in here, you turn your mobile phone off. And probably when you're on the train or on the bus, you don't use your mobile phones. But I'm afraid in England it's not always like that. And, and, and so I was on this train carriage and there were people talking away on their mobile phones. I'm leaving the station now. And, you know, as if the whole carriage needs to know you're leaving the station or even the person you're talking to needs to know you're leaving the station now. And, uh, so uh, anyway, the subject of mobile phones came up and I was talking to the person opposite me and uh, about mobile phones and we were kind of, I guess we're having a little moan about it. And, uh, and she started telling me about something that she had witnessed some years ago when mobile phones were new. It's not that long ago. I mean, you, you remember just a few years ago when, when hardly anybody had a mobile phone. And having a mobile phone was a lifestyle statement. It was cool. <laughs> it was very cool to have a mobile phone. It's just kind of on your hippie and you, you, know, you have it on the outside, and you like to just kind of put it on the desk in front of you and be seen with your mobile phone. And, and this was only a few years ago, and there's apparently this, uh, this woman was traveling on a train where there was some guy with his mobile phone, and he was obviously feeling cool, and, and, and he was using it at the top of his voice and having conversations and, oh, yeah, and talking away and chatting away and finish that call and then make another call and talk away. Well, you know what happened? 
On that train, there was a woman, a pregnant woman, who suddenly went into labour. And uh, you know, I mean, this is a, you know, this is a big thing. <laughs> I mean, the baby's about to come out, <laughs> and uh, you know, well, people, we've got to do something. So what do they do? They go to the guy with a mobile phone and say, "We need to make a call. This is an emergency." Guess what? It was a fake phone. <laughs> I'm sure the suffering he went through was nothing compared to what, you know, I mean, what, no, I mean, what the woman went through giving childbirth <laughs> was nothing compared to what he went through. It probably took him, I don't know if he ever recovered from it, poor. She probably had several more kids by now. <laughs> oh, the shame, the embarrassment. Now, there's probably nobody here who would go quite to that extreme, but to some degree we're all a bit fake, aren't we? You know, we all, you know, we cultivate our image of ourselves, thinking that somehow our image of ourselves is a source of security. I mean, being seen with a mobile phone, I mean, give me a break. I mean, you know, having a mobile phone. But then what are we doing most of the time when we're preening ourselves in front of the mirror? And, well, okay, you don't want to look disgusting. I mean, I look, I look in the mirror when I shave as well. I want to make sure I've not got blood trickling down my head or before I go to give a talk. I mean, there's a time and place to look in a mirror, but we sometimes go a little bit too far, don't we? And... And that going a little bit too far, that's a problem for us. We, we end up taking ourselves too seriously, really, don't we? we you know, and somebody who we don't know says something rude to us, what happens? We get upset, terribly upset. They don't even know who we are. This happened to me in England when uh, I was going Bindabart one day, walking down the road, very mindful, going on arms round and you know, going about my duties as a monk, walking down the road, and somebody goes by in a car, a bunch of yobos, and then some, somebody leans his head out the window and, and yells something really vulgar. I'm not going to repeat it. I'd like to, but I won't. Really gross. He says, you so-and-so. And, and I was like, well, you know, that, really, that really struck me to be called that. And that uh, really went in, and and he just drove off, and I was left shaking, and I, I went back to the monastery, and and I don't think I told anybody. I was so shaken by it, and ate my meal, went to my room, and and you know it was about five o'clock in the evening, and in my mind it was still there. Going, you so and so, you so and so, you so and so. Well, who's the idiot round here? I mean, he he only called me that once. I've called myself this I don't know how many hundreds of times. Now, and what was going on? He doesn't even know who I am. And I'm not one of those that he called me. I'm not. So what was the problem? What was the problem? Was it me that was a problem? It wasn't me that was a problem. It was something to do with the image of me. That which is once removed from me. If I was me and he called me that, big deal, it's nothing me. It's nothing to do with me. He wants to call me that. That's his problem. No problem. But it's not like that for us, is it? We, you know, we, we invest so much in the sense of idea of who and what we are. We build up it. We cultivate it. It's a big thing, our self-image. You market it these days. Everybody's got a CV. You, you, you've got to have one. And you've got to have a passport. And I don't know if you have identity cards in this country and... You've got, we've all got history and we may, we've got our names and, 
and we, we develop very strong feelings. What, what are these strong feelings that we, we either take delight in or suffer in response to so much? Is, is it really with regards to who and what we really, really are? Or was it in response to this image of who and what we are? Now this is worth looking at. This is good because if we don't really know who we are, we can be conned. We can be fooled. We can be fooled very easily. We can be pushed around. The winds come and if we don't have deep roots into the, the, into the core of our being, if we don't really know how to tap in deep to who and what we really are, then the surface winds of the world, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and suffering, honour and insignificance, the eight worldly dhammas, when these things blow, we can get blown over. So no amount of thinking is going to do this for us. We need to register deeply, clearly, this is necessary. If we don't take this contemplation, this investigation seriously, we're going to get fooled consistently by the way things appear to be. So hopefully, discussing this this evening, there'll be some encouragement that when we find ourselves in daily life situations where the idea of me, for instance, as an example, comes up and is either praised or offended in some way, complimented or criticised, we don't just believe in the feelings that come up. We say, well, what, what are these feelings in relationship to anyway? Does this person really know me? Well, like when you, like when you travel, coming to, coming to Australia this time from, from England, I've got, a, I've got both a New Zealand passport and a British passport, and, and if I go to the check-in desk and I you know, hand them my, my uh, British passport, and I say, oh, you need a visa to get into Australia. I say, oh, sorry, I take that one back and give them to my New Zealand passport. <laughs> and I say, oh, no problems, mate, you're okay. <laughs> I say, well, which one am I? Am I a New Zealander or am I British? Or the other day, I, you know, I was talking about Timmy. I said, Oops, no, 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 Tansuri Panyo. I don't really know Tansuri Panyo. I know Timmy. I have never lived with Tansuri Panyo. I know him as a university student, Timmy. He doesn't even know Timmy anymore. He, he's a who? He knows Suri Well, it's very interesting when you get a, monk, a monk's name. You, you change your name. And after, in the beginning, it doesn't make any sense. Or even when we're born as human beings, when you've... You get given your name. You're not born with a name, are you? I was born, and I was just this thing, born in a in a little village in New Zealand called Tiawamutu, a kind of nowhere place in the middle of nowhere, Tiawamutu, and and my mother and father are kind of all gooey about this new little baby, and they and they call me Keith, <laughs> Keith Morgan, and then they say Keith. <laughs> <laughs> I was going, eh. <laughs> doesn't mean anything. I don't know who Keith is. <laughs> Takes a while. You know, I think, oh, Keith, 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 Keith. And then eventually it's like, Keith, oh, me. You know, after a while being called Keith, it's just the feeling of me. But is that me, you know, really me? Is that really me? Because I noticed a few years later, I wasn't called me. I wasn't called Keith anymore. I was called Ajahn Munindo. In fact, it wasn't called that first. I was Ajahn Chah when I first ordained. I was called Upano. I thought, that's a crummy name. I, mean, <laughs> I really didn't like this name, Upano. There was an Australian monk, uh, a friend of mine. His name was Bruce Evans. Lives in lives in Melbourne now. And Bruce and I were ordained together. It was a time when a lot of monks were being ordained by Ajahn Chah. And Ajahn Chah only ordained a few monks so for a very few few years. And but he, you know, during that time he really crammed them in and, 
and so it was sort of like you know a little machine operation going on there and and I think when when it came for Bruce and myself, Bruce Evans and Keith Morgan to be ordained, I don't think Ajahn Chah really figured out what to call us, and so he turned to his secretary and he said, "What should we call them and and the secretary just came up with these names, and I was called Upano, which doesn't mean anything. It just means born. I mean, it's nothing impressive about it. It's, you know, it's nothing beautiful or altruistic or amazing about being called born. And, and the other monk, Bruce, he was called Puriso, which just means man. I mean, <laughs> which is, you know, it's obvious. We didn't. <laughs> I could have told you that. <laughs> You know, I mean, other people get these amazing names like Brahma Wangso, you know. <laughs> Siri Panyo, you know. Radiant Wisdom, or, you know, Family of the Gods. You could have been called Man. And, uh, so we, we actually, Puriso went and complained to Ajahn Chah, and. <laughs> we didn't like our names, and. <laughs> And Ajahn Shah said, well, you know, that's okay. After 10 years, come back and we'll talk about it again. <laughs> so for 10 years, he was Puriso and I was Upano. Upano. And I, I didn't like, I never liked being called Upano. But you got put up with it. Actually, he didn't make 10 years. He decided to go back to being Bruce again. And, um, but I managed to last 10 years. And um, after 10 years, Ajahn Sumato, out of great compassion... Uh, decided to offer me a new name. So he called me Munindo. I thought, that's a nice name. And, uh, but, you know, I missed being called Upano. <laughs> and people would say, Munindo, nothing happened. Menindo. I'd look sideways and say, who's he talking to? And nobody called me Upano anymore. I felt left out. But it was interesting, it was actually interesting to, it was a very interesting experience. In fact, in some Buddhist countries, this is quite a normal practice, that they change your name regularly through your life. You know, you're not called Bruce your whole life or, or whatever. You, if something happens, you, know, you get married, you get a new name, or your house build, burns down, you build a new house, you get a new name, or you get sick and you get well, you get a new name, because there is an understanding in Buddhism that, as you've all heard, that attachment is not good for us. And so getting attached to our name, what that, what that really represents is getting attached to the image of ourselves. In fact, I think Sol wasn't born with that name. I think he was probably called Bruce or something before, but he's now called Sol. And, uh, you know, any of you want to change your name, I think it's a good idea. Go and see Ajahn Brahma Wong, so he'll come up with a new name. It's very interesting. You can reflect on this feeling of me. And what is this feeling of me? What it appears like, what me appears like, is something awfully important. You know, I really do appear terribly important to myself. But I am myself, for goodness sake. Why should I be busy looking at the image of myself when I am myself? What's it all about? Well, it's about delusion, isn't it? You know, it's okay to have a functional image of ourselves. That's healthy if we... Don't, by the age we reach, by the age of seven, we haven't developed a functional sense of individuality. Well, we've got a problem, and we might need some help. But presumably, by the age of seven, all of us did develop a functional image of ourselves. We can differentiate ourselves from our parents and, and the world around us, and and that's healthy and suitable. And we get around knowing that when somebody calls our name, there's a functional sense of me. And the Buddha, Buddha also talked about me. You know, when the Buddha gave the teaching on anatta or no self, 
He wasn't saying you don't exist. I thought he did mean that, actually. I spent the first year of my monk trying to prove, monkhood trying to prove I didn't exist. And I, I got very skinny. <laughs> and uh, very sick. And nearly crazy. Fortunately, I caught myself just before I went over the edge. And thought, well, that was a mistake. And try another approach. And, and the, we all make mistakes in the beginning. And, and that's understandable. But grasping the Buddha's teaching too tightly like grasping the teaching on anatta, not self, and trying to convince ourselves we don't exist. That's a mistake. When the Buddha taught anatta, he wasn't trying to say we don't exist. He was just saying, this is an encouragement to look and investigate into what is this experience of me existing? What is the, what is the truth? Don't settle for the way it appears to be. If we do settle for the way it appears to be, our behavior is conditioned by that perception of apparent reality, and we can get around as if thinking that this image of ourselves is the most important thing in the world. And it's not the most important thing in the world at all. The Buddha, you know, the Buddha, he said he didn't have any enemies. Everybody was his friend. And yet, you know, those people trying to kill him. So how could that be? How could it be that the Buddha said he didn't have any enemies and yet people were trying to kill him. You see, the Buddha wasn't living in the image of himself. He wasn't worried about what other things people thought of him at all. He knew who and what he was. He let go completely of the image of himself. Didn't mean to say there still wasn't a functioning sense of self. He didn't have a problem mentally. The Buddha was perfectly clear. But he wasn't attached to the image of himself. And so cultivating the kind of attention that enables us to investigate the feeling of me when it arises is really important. Not grasping the Buddha's teaching on anatta and just you know, trying to grasp it as a philosophy or understand it conceptually, but taking it so that when me arises, somebody praises us and you feel wonderful. Who feels wonderful? Who feels wonderful? And to feel that question, to feel that question. Or if somebody criticizes us and, and insults us, <clears throat> blames us for something that, you know, rightly or wrongly, and the bad feeling comes. If we've trained ourselves, if we prepare ourselves properly, we're not just going to assume that that feeling is the end of anything. We're going to be able to look into it. So this evening, uh, hopefully I can encourage all of us to myself included to remember that this is an ongoing practice this is not something that we just get the, get a handle of and grasp and say okay I understand this it's a tool the Buddha's teachings are tools that we need to learn how to hold properly hold skillfully and apply consistently and if we do learn how to hold them properly and apply them consistently then we do experience the benefit the benefit of this kind of practice as I was saying in the beginning is that we develop a real agility to be able to accord with conditions. Yeah. Accord with conditions, whether they're agreeable or disagreeable, inwardly and outwardly. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.